Thanks so much for coming out very often. I know it's a busy week right before spring break. Um, and so if you've been with us, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and tonight we get, uh, it's not an awkward commandment, but it's just a commandment for either of you kind of grew up and this commandment was maybe really celebrated in your family and maybe even in some legalistic ways, or you kind of grew up in, and you've never really heard maybe any kind of teaching around it. So it's going to be kind of a, a wild ride to sort of see how we fit those two worlds together. But what I want to do is read just the commandments, the fourth one, and that's Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. And I'll just read it for us, and then we'll dive right in. So here's the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. It's in your handout. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Own it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. Or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested in the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to just dive right in. Let's pray. Lord, um, we, we thank you for your promise that your word, no matter how strange it can be to us, no matter how um, hard it can be sometimes for us, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us, Lord, that your word never returns to you void. And Lord, you, uh, every part of it, every commandment, every uh, corner of your word uh, is precious to us because we know you have something in it for us. And Lord, I pray as we get to the fourth commandment, you would be gracious to show us what true rest is. Be gracious to challenge us uh, in the ways that's so hard for us to not even think about how we're being conformed to the world. And Lord, we just pray that you bless bless our time together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So that's where I want to start with one of the most awkward conversations slash moments in my marriage. And it came from, uh, my, I was in seminary, my wife and I were newly married. And I had, my story is kind of like I became a Christian, didn't have any clue where I was theologically. Um, in college, kind of really wrestled, drifted apart from the church or any kind of ministry. And then right after college, really got into this thing that we call Reformed Theology, which is the R and RUF, and went on to seminary. And when I got to seminary, I really, the first time I ever heard kind of teaching and, and saw people that really took the fourth commandment seriously was in seminary. And so I decided that I really wanted to be old school Southern Presbyterian. I really wanted to be what you could call in our circles a TR, a totally Reformed and every aspect of my life guy. 
And so I really uh, never heard any kind of teaching on the, on the Sabbath before. And I kind of got involved with a church that had, had you know, talked a fair amount about it and really practiced it. And the way they practiced it was basically you don't go eat on Sunday anywhere. No restaurant. You do only kind of home-cooked meals and you stay in homes and you sort of don't make anyone else work because the Lord seems to take not working pretty seriously, at least you know, as we look at it in this commandment. So here we are, we're visiting this church, I'm in my, I've got my conviction, and uh, we are kind of lonely, we don't have friends yet. We go to church, and our church didn't practice this commandment, they weren't like we're hardcore TR people, they just were sort of normal, like we're going to go to Wendy's afterwards, and they invited us along, some couples that we could be friends with. And I remember getting in the car with my wife in one of those early moments where I was like, guess who won't be going to Wendy's? Us. Because we're going to, but do you, have you ever heard the fourth commandment? No, we're not going to Wendy's. And my wife, literally, if you asked her about it, she was in tears. Like, why can't we go to Wendy's? And I'm like, have you read the fourth commandment? And at that moment for me, it was like something that was very, I knew something was off because A, I was sort of angry slash thought I was better than, you know, one of these was like a professor in my, at my seminary. I was like, I'm a better Christian than you, you, you little worldling. I'll show you holy. And, uh, and I knew something was off, and then the Lord really over the years has kind of reworked the way I understand it. Part of what's awkward about this commandment is I don't know your family. Uh, and again, I'm assuming some of you maybe grew up in a family you had a very strict view, maybe it applied in those ways. Some of you maybe have n- never even heard, like, what are the, what's the fourth commandment? And so we're going to try to talk about it in a way that I hope is going to be helpful and leave room for your own conviction. But the way we're going to do it is kind of think about, but I, I say that story to say, when it comes to applying some of these commandments and even understanding them, it can get tricky. And so what I really want to do, and yet the Lord has something for us, or it wouldn't be one of the commandments. Like one of the things you can take to the bank is if we have ten of the commandments, it really is a summary of the things God really cares about. And so what I want to do tonight is sort of look at what is he saying to us, what does he want for us when he talks about the Sabbath day. And we're going to keep our same kind of pattern. We're going to talk about first what does it mean negatively, second what does it mean positively, how does Jesus fulfill and transform it, and then lastly how does it apply in your life, how does it apply to you. So first, with me again, what does it mean negatively? And I think we could sum it up and kind of say this. That when it comes to the way that we relate to work on the one hand and rest on the other, that the Lord calls us to be absolutely different than the world. That, that we can say it this way, that, that the Sabbath day for God's people was meant to be a sign. It was meant to be kind of two things. It was meant to be a reminder to them about who God was, that their work ultimately was for God, and that their rest was ultimately found in God. And yet it was also supposed to be sort of a sign and reminder, like a, a declaration, a reminder, but also a sign and declaration to the world around, sort of saying there's something bigger than our work, and there's something deeper than our rest. And it was meant to sort of say we're, we're different because we belong to Yahweh. We're different because we belong to this God. And, and it's interesting because think about for just a second as we think about that that's still true today. That as a Christian, as a believer... The way you approach your work should be absolutely different in some ways than the way the world approaches its work. I don't know if you saw, I mean, here's what I keep thinking about. Like, so sometimes when you think about the world's approach to work, it can either be, uh, it can either, you can, it can be wearying because you, the, the mean, it's a, it's a means to an end that maybe is money or it's a means to an end that maybe is power. So if you saw Wolf of Wall Street, this was sort of the, one of the big themes of the movie is there were no limits Literally, in days of the week, hours of the week, to what he would do because money was, I mean, he loved the, really the power that money brought him. And you sort of saw, if you've seen the movie, if you read the book, you sort of see how it plays out in his life, and it doesn't end well. And there's a sense in which we know that as Christians, there's supposed to be a limit to our work. 
And then there's actually a different sort of mean, there's a, you know, that work is a means to an end, and that end is to glorify God with all that we do, with all that we have. And it should absolutely sort of transform the way that we approach our work. And the one hand, it gives it, it gives a greater meaning. That's why I think, you know, I love sort of, you know, the places where we talk about that really anything, any kind of work we do, if it's done into that aim and that goal, that the glory of God, it really does redeem any kind of work. I mean, any kind of high work, low work, white collar work, blue collar work, it redeems it all. Because it changes our approach. The, the, the goal and the motivation is different. But it also, like, the way that we're called to rest is actually different too. When you think about the way that the world thinks about rest and the way that Christians or believers think about rest... It's fascinating to think about kind of the differences. On the one hand, sometimes rest in a worldly sense is really kind of one of two things that we can fall into as Christians. On the one hand, it can be an escape. It can be an escape from the world and my life that I hate, which is why sometimes we we work to dream of a vacation or we work to dream of owning a lake house or owning a beach house. You know, because we long to escape our, you know, we don't love, that's why the Seth Godin line is so helpful when he says, if, you, if you're constantly working for vacation, maybe structure your life in a way that you're not longing always to escape it. But sometimes we do this, the, you know, worldly approach to rest can be the escape thing, but sometimes it can be the numbing thing. Where you're sort of, you know, maybe bored, or maybe you're, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know why you're here. In Netflix or, you know, drinking or, you know, eating, all kinds of different things can become a way you just numb the boredom, the pain, the hurt, the meaninglessness of your soul. And then, but, you know, rest in, in the godly sense is the enjoyment, you know, when God rests, which he does, we're, you know, we rest because God rests. God, God's rest isn't because he's bored. God's rest isn't because he's even tired, in a sense, God's rest is an enjoyment. It's a right and a pausing. It's the moment after you've cut the grass. And I hope, if you, I hope you do this. <laughs> For me, it's like one of the only manly things that I do. Is sometimes, when you're honest, my wife does it. And I, that's a little awkward. But when I do it, you, I hope you have that moment where after you cut it, you sort of enjoy it. You enjoy the smell. You enjoy the sight of it. And there's a sense in which rest as Christians. It's not escaping or numbing. It's an enjoyment. It's an enjoyment of the gifts of God. But it's also an enjoyment of... You know, it's when you lay your head at pillow after a day where you really did knock out your homework and you really did, like, clock in and you were present if you work a job. Or even in class where you literally, like, took notes that day and didn't, like, play on your phone or whatever your temptation is to do. And you can lay your head on your pillow because there's a sense in which you can rest in the day's work that you did it well. There's a sense in which it, it transforms us. That, that when we think about the Sabbath, that this is supposed to be sort of a day set aside to sort of on the one hand say we're going to rest from our work and we're going to enjoy God and God's people. And there's a sense in which God wants his people to structure their weeks in this way. Where there's a day sort of set aside to him. And I was thinking about it. So, so for, them, for some of us this, this seems strange. What I kept thinking about is, and maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, but and the Olympics just happened, and uh, a lot of us are, were fans of the Olympics. I'm more a Summer Olympics fan. And there's a, a story uh, from the 1924 Paris Olympics. Uh, there was a guy who, he was one of the fastest people. He's a Scottish guy, and he was actually a Christian, but he was one of the fastest 100-meter runners uh, in the world. And he was asked to you know, go run for his country. And uh, he, he learned, he, was, he was, had this conviction that on the Lord's Day, we really we worship and we enjoy God's people. We enjoy him, but we don't do our work. And that for him included any kind of running, any kind of Olympics sort of training, which is impressive to think about. An Olympic athlete, if you know anything about Olympic athletes, they, they train. So for him, sort of saying Sunday is the day where I don't do anything. I just enjoy God and his people. 
And there was a sense in which he, he knew ahead of time that the 100 meter, that there was going to be a heat on, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. And so he well ahead of time said, I'm not going to run that heat. So he was disqualified from this event. His name is Eric Little. He's disqualified from the event. He signed up to run the 400 instead. And he's never really, he wasn't known for running the 400. He wasn't particularly fast in the 400. But as he got to the Olympics, you know, as he got to prepare for the 400, there's a beautiful story where literally right as he's at the, uh, I was just learning this today, I didn't know this part of the story, where he's, he's getting ready to run the 400 to compete for the gold. And there's a guy, he's actually a trainer from the American team, and he knew the story. It was very sort of controversial, even in the 20s, that this guy would not run the Olympics, you know, kind of a big deal, because it was the Lord's Day, because it was the Sabbath. And this guy, you know, as he's running this other event, the 400, this guy, this American trainer, passes him a note, this First Samuel 2, 2, that says, the Lord honors those who honor him. And he actually won the 400, he won the gold, it's sort of like a movie, I mean, they made a movie, chariots of fire out of it. But there's a sense in which, you know, he actually like, set a world record as he did it. But I was, here's what I was thinking about, because I don't know how that comes across to you. You're like, oh, that sounds great. But what's interesting to me is, like, can we, I don't even think we have a category for that today. Like, can you, I just want you to put yourself in this current Olympics. What would we as Christians have done if there had been a guy that had been like, you know what, I'm not going to ski because it's a Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And what's interesting as I was thinking about that is, I think we've gotten to this weird place where we almost are more afraid of what the world thinks about what we do as Christians than we are like, about what God thinks of us as Christians. Which is a little bit of a scary moment to be in. Because part of what the Ten Commandments, I hope, are doing for you is sort of saying there is a sense. There is a sense that you can be holy without being a Pharisee. That there is a sense in which it is right and good for you to love grace. A wonderful thing which is going to make you love God more. But also it's going to make you care more about what God thinks about how you live your life. Than about how the world around you is going to perceive you. And about how the friends around you. Because think about how in the world would you explain to them. That you're going to sort of, you have this conviction that's between you and God because of his word. And you're not going to do something that's going to make you look crazy. That's going to make you look insane. And I think sometimes in our circles at least, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm more afraid of what people are going to think than I am what God, what, what God is going to think. When I'm in that place, I'm not going to be able, to, I'm not going to, be able to, to honor him in my obedience with these commandments. So first, what does it mean negatively? But then second, think with me for a second about what it means positively. And this is where I think sometimes, even if we've grown up in a place where we've heard teaching or we had parents who were really had strong convictions about this, here's where I think it gets sort of the positive side of it. it. Is what does God intend the day to be? If we're sort of saying, okay, it seems like he's asking us to set this day apart for him and for his people, I think that actually he's inviting us into three things. And the first thing you have to see off the bat as we begin to talk about the three things he's inviting us into is that from the very beginning of creation, God's in, his, his design and his intention with this commandment was for it to be a blessing and not a burden. That's one of the things that fundamentally, I hope, changes your view of God. God doesn't give you these commandments because he's like, I can't wait to make their life miserable. I can't wait to really mess with their heads and show them that I'm the one in control. I mean, it's like, you know, I've used this before, but sometimes when, you know, we're getting ready to go to a summer conference in May. and You should sign up and go with us. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, one of the rules that we have for our family is we go get donuts every year. And uh, there's this incredible Thomas Donut Shack. I might have pushed it too much. I still think it's some of the best donuts in the world because they have this cinnamon sugar donut that Krispy Kreme used to do when I was growing up. I could explain. I could go into it, but I won't. <laughs> so, but when you go, you have to kind of, when we go, it's sometimes crowded. So you park across this kind of high, this beach highway. It's pretty high trafficked. 
And we have this rule, right? Where my kids, when we park across the street, my kids are as excited as I am. Like, no, you, you can't cross the street, especially when my kids are younger, without holding an adult's hand. And, you know, I think about that because I think we had this sort of rule. We had this commandment, if you will, because I cared and loved my kids. Not because I was trying to be like a jerk, like, you know, like, you will not enjoy these donuts. You will not enjoy this time. And so they didn't get hit by a car. So they, they actually live to enjoy three or four, <laughs> five or six or seven or eight donuts. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget this is God's heart in giving us even this commandment. Is he intends for it to be a blessing, not a burden. He intends for it to bring life to you and those around you, not to kill life, right? Jesus is very clear. Satan's the one who comes to, to kill, steal, and destroy. God is the opposite of that. He comes to give life, to bless. So what is he inviting us to there? I think three things that we can think about when we think about the Lord's Day. The first is pretty obvious. It's just physical rest. Like part of God's design in the Sabbath is to give his people physical rest. Now for us, because we don't, a lot of us, some of us maybe grew up in homes where your, your parents l- literally worked more of a blue-collar job that was hard and, and required physical labor. A lot of us don't work in that kind of job. But I think any kind of job we can say requires some sort of mental, hopefully, requires some sort of mental labor and challenge. But the design here is to remind us that we're not, our bodies and our minds and our, in our souls, we're not machines. There's a real sense in which God is saying he cares about bodies and he cares that we have times of refreshment, physical, literal refreshment, where we take a break, where we take a nap, where we, you know, do something that we enjoy, whether that's watch a movie that makes you laugh or whether that's read a book or whether that's playing some World of Warcraft, whatever it is for you. Hopefully it's not the last one, but if it is, this is a safe place. That's why I love the Cornelius Plantinga quote you have it in your handout. This really hit me. He says this. He says, the idea right from the start is that there is a time to speak and a time to be silent, each in turn. There is a time to work and a time to rest from work, each in turn. <coughs> We forget this because we live in a wired world where computers don't need to rest, but humans do. And to say so, God in Genesis 1 does a remarkable thing. He creates humans in the sixth day and then gives them the next day off. And one of the things I hope you sort of see is that God really doesn't care about rest. And that's one of the things that's countercultural for us is I think we secretly think that that is kind of weak. I was where, like, I mean, I can remember being jealous. I have this, you know, I have a family member who's like, I really only need three hours of sleep. And then I'm like, and then she's like, works, 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 works. And then like sleeps three hours and then works, 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 works. And I don't, I think we think about someone that's lazy. Like if, if she was like worked three hours a day and then like slept the rest of the time, I think you and I would be like, oh, lazy. What's wrong with you? But I think sometimes even me, who's, who's more prone to underworking, looks at someone like that, I'm kind of, and we kind of admire them. We're like, yeah. Like, I just read a tweet from this girl that I follow on Twitter. She was like, I worked 60 hours this week. And I'm sort of impressed by that. And I think we even have this idea that God is impressed by that. But then I think we need to remember, this commandment is sort of saying, God is not impressed by that. Because he's really committed to rest. And he knows sometimes the reason we work 60-hour weeks is because we don't have room in our life to have him be the reason that we have meaning in life. And we have to have this job, and we have to have some other meaning that makes us a man or makes us a person or makes us a woman that feels like we have this whatever instead of finding that in God himself. So first, it's an invitation to actual physical rest. But then second, it's an invitation to actually enjoy God. And this is the thing that I I hope, this is what was challenging to me, I hope it's challenging to you, is that literally God is, is... 
calling his people to carve out a day, to carve out a day in their week, to create time and space simply to connect and grow in their love and intimacy and relationship with him. And when you think about that, I mean, this is sort of, this is how the whole idea of quiet times, whatever you think about that, where you kind of work a quiet time into your day to do that, it can be a great thing. But this is God sort of saying from the beginning, that's great. Think about carving out time in your day for sure. But the thing that I really want you to be committed to is carving out a day in your week. The thing that I really want you to be committed to here is carving out literally a day where you, do, you don't work, where all you, all you do is you're enjoying me. And for us, it means that's worship. That's why a lot of the churches that, that you know, especially in the 18, 1900s and even early, early, you know, 20th century, you know, had a Sunday morning and Sunday evening service. You know, what, what does it matter? It doesn't mean we have to have that. But the reason they had that was to sort of bookend the Lord's Day. To sort of say, okay, we want to sort of begin the day with praising, learning, enjoying God. We want to sort of end the day praising, learning, enjoying God together. And there's a sense in which, you know, it's funny to me because I think, you know, this is why even in my marriage, you know, we, we haven't been perfect with this. But even I get this at a marriage level. And you get this even if you're dating at a dating level. And even at a friendship level. I mean, you get this idea that there's sometimes you do a date night once a week. Or you do a, like, intentional hangout with friends night. Like maybe you do a wings night or a pizza night. I don't know what you do. Where you intentionally carve out space just to do face-to-face time with one another. And, like... Part of, why, part of what's good for that in my marriage, for example, I do that sort of with marriage and with friendships. I have these friends that I get together with every Tuesday before RUF, and then I have another set of friends I get together with every Tuesday after RUF. And part of me is carving out time and space because I need friends. <laughs> Typically after this happens, and I feel very vulnerable, I need some friends, and I need them to give me strength before I do this because this is never, this is always hard at some level. Uh, and part of what we're saying is you're carving out intentional time and space to connect. And if we can say it this way, that one, let me say it this way, that one of God's love languages is quality time. Mm, that sounded worse, better in my head than it did out loud. But there's a sense in which there, he is saying there's a sense in which I love for you to create time, intentional time and space to connect with me, for me to connect with you. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's a chemist minister. He was a chemist minister. And uh, he had this uh, friend and where he was uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he had a friend that was a chef in this nice restaurant. And, uh, and he had this story where one time he got to know, he ate a lot at this restaurant because he's a foodie, kind of like, um, like I am. And he got to know this chef, and he was talking to him one night after the restaurant had closed and the chef was kind of hanging around. And he asked the chef, he said, you know, you make all this incredible food for us. He's like, what, what do you eat? He's like, do you make sort of something for yourself? And the guy actually, he, what he said shocked him because he said, no. What I actually do is I actually go to Waffle House. And my friend said it just struck him because here he is, he's preparing these incredible meals for everybody in Knoxville. And yet he's eating himself with this greasy, and if you like Waffle House, it's cool. I like Gaffigan when he says, well, <laughs> Waffle House feels like a gas station bathroom turned into a restaurant. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a sense in which that's what we sometimes do as Christians, where we can talk a lot about the gospel, we can talk a lot with one another about God, but then we're not actually enjoying him ourselves. And part of what he's inviting us into in the, in the Sabbath is to, to intentionally enjoy him. But then three, kind of the last thing he's inviting us to is he's also enjoying us. He's also calling us and inviting us to enjoy one another, to enjoy not only God, but God's people. Um, to, to, to sort of not only nurture your connection with, with the Lord, but also to nurture, to make connections with other believers. And this is why sometimes, you know, you know I see sometimes students who... 
you know, it's very clear in Scripture, Hebrews 10, 25, not for, you know, it calls us to, to not neglect meeting together. Basically, Hebrews 10, 25 is saying, listen, go to church. This is part of why it's so vital for you, is you need, to, you need connections with your brothers and sisters and your father and mother. Like, you need it in your life. It's not optional in the Christian life. It's something that's very, very vital to what it means to be a Christian because you need to be connected to God's people. And, and Scripture actually says you can't be connected to God and not be connected to his people. And part of your, part of your you know, if you feel distant from Jesus and you haven't been to church in like six weeks or six months or however long, there's, the Bible source says there's a logical connection. Because there's a sense that as we're connected with his people, we're actually growing in our connection with him. And so it's an invitation, too, to enjoy God's people together. Um, you know, this is the way I think about it, but ideally, again, I know this can be hard and we can talk about all the things that make going, you know, church and worship awkward and, you know, do we connect with these people? Don't we connect them? But here's the ideal, I think, for the Lord and the Sabbath. I kept picturing sort of when you, if you've read Harry Potter, if you've watched the movies, do you remember the scenes when like, when like they come back from the summer and they like come back to Hogwarts and like, just take Gryffindor, for example, and here's Gryffindor, and they're like coming back from whatever they, for Harry, it was from all the abuse of the summer he'd suffered, and he's sort of coming back for the first time. And just the joy and like the, just the, like the, just the, oh, I can't, I'm so glad to see you. There's a sense when the Bible talks about us gathering together, that that's sort of just a, that's what it should be like. The sense in which we really do enjoy one another in that level. And if you're not, maybe it's because you're a little bit afraid to let people know you in that way. If you're not, maybe it's a little. Maybe it's because you're not. You know, either you're flaky, you know, either you're sort of putting walls up, or you're flaky. You just you can't commit, and both of those are going to like kill any kind of deepening of relationship. It's going to kill that Hogwarts joy that we're going for. You know what I'm saying? I think we're all want some of that joy in our lives. Um, another way of saying it is, in a world that sort of worships work and thereby makes itself weary, and in a world that worships rest and thereby sort of makes itself. Sometimes lazy, it makes itself sometimes numbing and escaping. Part of what the Lord is calling his people to in the Sabbath is to sort of say, there's a God who, he's actually the rest you're looking for. And he actually gives a breath to your work. He gives a depth to your rest that you're not going to find in Netflix. And he gives a, he gives a, a, a depth and a, a breath to your work that you're not going to find just in, in the work itself. So then think with me for a second about how does Jesus then fulfill and transform it? It's fascinating if you know the Gospels. There's a scene at the end of Mark 2 where Jesus gets into an argument because some of the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples plucking the grain. And for them, and the, sort of, they had these rules, and they, that was actually a breaking of the commandment. So they sort of looked at Jesus' disciples and said, Jesus, you must not care about this commandment. Jesus, you must not care about the Sabbath, and neither do your people. And it's interesting because Jesus does two things with them. If you know the story at the end of Mark 2, when they sort of challenge him and say, you're breaking the commandment. Don't you care about the Sabbath. Jesus does two things. On the one hand, he really confronts and challenges their legalistic approach to God. That's why he tells the story, he tells the story about David, that David, when he was on the run from Saul, actually went into the temple and ate bread because he was weary from a journey. And essentially he says, listen, your problem is that you care more about keeping the rules than you do about keeping close to God. And that's, that is some of you. Some of you care more about keeping the rules than you care about keeping close to God. And Jesus is sort of saying that is the definition of legalism. That you are sort of making the rules more important than any kind of intimate, loving, obedient relationship to God. But then he does this other thing where he basically says, listen, 
This whole idea of the Sabbath, this entire idea, this entire idea of finding a day and committing a day to rest, Jesus basically says, listen, I'm the rest you've been looking for. I'm the Sabbath, so to speak. That's why he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Another way of thinking about it is the Lord of rest. That in all the places that we've looked to to give us rest, in all the places in our restlessness that we've overworked or underworked and escaped and numbed, that in all those places where we've looked to relationships and to things, and we've looked to things outside, Jesus is saying, I'm the rest you've longed for. From the very, and he's, he's sort of saying from the beginning, I'm the creator who made the Sabbath. But on the other hand, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because I'm actually what the Sabbath points to. A place where you can actually rest in my work on your behalf. And, I, and from that place of finding rest in my work, it gives you strength actually to work from my rest. And there's a sense that's why Jesus on the cross does that beautiful cry. It's one of the last words that we're going to celebrate as we enter into the Lent and Easter season. One of the last cries of the cross is, it is finished. And when Jesus said it is finished, what he means was all of the work necessary for you to have salvation, all of the work necessary for you to be in right relationship with God, Jesus himself did. So you can rest in his work. But then when you, when you come to rest in that work, it actually empowers you to begin to work from that rest in ways that are incredibly powerful and incredibly freeing. Well, how in the world does it apply to you? And here's the way that I think, just three quick things that, that I think this commandment sort of you need to wrestle with and I need to wrestle with. Here they are real quickly. First, the Lord is calling you to structure your life in a way where the Lord's day is, Lord's day works, especially is crucial, not optional. You know, the, Lord, the Sabbath became the Lord's day because of Jesus. Christians actually moved from a Saturday to a Sunday because Sunday was the resurrection when the resurrection, we believe, historically happened. And there's a sense in which worship on Sunday is, is actually hugely important for you. And one of the simplest things you could do is simply commit yourself to joining somewhere where you fit and making that day of worship a real, like, a, not just optional but crucial to you. Something that you don't, you're not going to sort of either miss through because you love sleep more or miss because you love your whatever social outlet you do. I mean, this is the way I keep thinking about it is we do this with certain things in our culture. This is why, like, when, there's, when it's football season... Think about the way that, that really we do plan our whole Saturday around the game for those of us who are fans. Like, we literally, from the beginning, it's nothing to us to get to, to buy, like, you know, to literally walk. Like, literally, one of the first years here, like, I, I carried Zaxby's from, like, Rose Hill Church all the way down to this fairgrounds because it's like, we love, I mean, football is a big deal. And there's a sense that we're willing to put in some work to it. We're willing to not do things that, that you can, you know, get, that can mess it up. And there's a sense in which I think the Lord is telling us that's part of how he wants us to think. That's, that's the way he wants us to begin to think about church and worship on Sunday. Um, that's why Cyprian used to say, he cannot have God for his father who doesn't have the church for his mother. And you and I have lost some of that. But there's a sense in which we don't necessarily see it that way. But the Lord, part of the Sabbath is the Lord saying, this is actually near and dear to my heart, but it's something that's crucial for you. That you can't, you know, it's, it's not just hard to live the Christian life without this. It's impossible. We need it in our lives. So to structure your life in a way where the Lord's Day worship, structure your week in a way where Lord's Day worship really is crucial, not optional. And then second, to structure the Lord's Day, to structure the Sabbath in a way where it actually enables both maximum enjoyment of God, but also maximum enjoyment of his people. This is where I think we, we're not very creative, is we don't think about routines that could do both of that. We don't think about what is it that, 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 that turns my heart and bends my heart toward God. Whatever that is for you, do that a lot on, on Sunday. Well, what is it that turns my heart toward his people? What is it that creates opportunities? Do that a lot on Sunday. 
There's a sense in which creating, structuring the day where it gives maximum enjoyment of both of those things. And then lastly, practice your convictions in a way that's joyful and concrete and solid, but not in a way that makes you a Pharisee. And this is where it gets so hard. Because you've got to, you know, part of, part of me wants to say convictions are cool. Like, part of me wishes you would, with each of these commandments, really wrestle with it and create some concrete convictions in your life. But not in a way where you then begin, you know, because we do this thing where we are looking, and I think the Lord wants us to begin looking at ourselves and what he wants for our life. But then the moment we create, we create a conviction, what we do is we begin applying it to everyone else. Why aren't they? And our eyes move from us and the Lord to other people. And we really begin managing their lives. Like, why aren't they having to do the same things that I'm doing? Part of me wants you to grow and develop convictions, but not in such a way that makes you a Pharisee. There's a song that I love that nails this for me. This idea that Jesus... What he's inviting us to in the Sabbath and what he's inviting us to in the Lord's Day is he invite, he's inviting us to come rest in his work. He's inviting us to come rest in him. He really is this Matthew 11 where he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden come and find rest and you will find rest for your souls. There's a song that nails this for me. It's by a guy named Tom Waits. I'm just going to read the lyrics and I'll close with this. It's called Coming Up to the House. Tom Waits is kind of, um, he's Bob Dylan but with a piano and a gruffier voice. And he says this. He says, there's nothing in the world that you can do. you got to come on up to the house. And you've been whipped by the forces that are inside you. Come on up to the house. Well, you're high on top of your mountain of woe. Come on up to the house. Well, you know you should surrender, but you can't let go. you got to come on up to the house. And I love that because I love to think this is in a way what Jesus is inviting us to. He's inviting us to really carve out this day where we do nothing but rest and celebrate and enjoy him and his work on our behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that that's something that can be strange to us. And for those of us who are still wrestling, even with the idea, would you be gracious to continue to wrestle with your word um, with us? But Lord, I pray to you that you would just, um, that you would help us receive this as an encouragement. Lord, we know that none of us feel like we've done this perfectly. And some of us feel like we've done this proudly. And Lord, we really do need your grace. We really do need your mercy um, to make us the kind of people that you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that for myself and I pray that for my friends. I pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.